And so last week Simon introduced the series by showing how being made in the image of God means we can make a case for human dignity and significance independent of their capacity or what we can do. So we talked about the dignity and significance of the embryo and the disabled in particular. Today I want to develop that theme, acknowledging that actually sin has marred and shattered us in the image of God. What that means is there's a group of people in this room who are being remade into a new image. We're being remade into the image of Jesus. I don't know if you've considered that although people are created in the image of God, the New Testament says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And this morning I want to explore what this means, what what the story of Jesus has to show us about our humanity in reference to refugees and asylum seekers. I want to say this morning this is not a political exercise. Uh, I want to leave you instead with a framework for thinking and for speaking about these matters. Uh, I've got no political statements for you. I think if we make a decision in one area, there's going to be a human cost in another. Or if we go this way and make a decision over here, there's going to be a human cost over there. But I do want to acknowledge with September approaching that there is an election coming, that unless we're going to take a vow of silence for the next three months, we will be having conversations about with our friends and neighbours. And so this morning I just want to spend, I guess, 20 minutes thinking about how we might approach those conversations, the sorts of things the Bible might help us with as we speak to our friends and neighbours. I don't know if you um, have thought about the sort of conversations that you have because our words matter, they are significant. I was thinking about the way that we use words in the Australian education system recently. Consider how we we speak about um, teaching mathematics. So you open up a maths textbook in Australian school and it says, Johnny wants to buy six apples. Okay, We use the language of commerce in our mathematics textbooks. We don't use the language of generosity. Johnny wants to donate six apples. Likewise, when we teach French or German, I learnt German at high school, we teach French and German in the language of tourism. Johnny wants to know where the nearest hotel is. Johnny wants to find the nearest ATM. We don't teach the language of hospitality. Johnny doesn't say, welcome, come and stay at my place. Hi, how can I help you? So our words do matter. And I want to start this morning by actually considering the sorts of words that came, um, I guess, out after World War II about this refugee and asylum seeker issue, the sorts of conversations that we're having in popular culture. I have two movies that I want to um, speak briefly about this morning before we get into it. The first is The Sound of Music, 1965. As peace returned after World War II, attitudes changed and the most loved stage and film musical of the era traced the family of who? A family of asylum seekers, the Von Trapp family. You can't escape knowing that they had real wealth, that Baron Von Trapp had status and political power, yet his family were asylum seekers as much as any Afghan refugees fleeing persecution. And who could forget Mother Abbas, that kind and knowing Mother Superior who facilitates their asylum into Switzerland? Today, we would demonise her as a people smuggler and jail her for her actions, maybe. Worse, she not only facilitated their escape, but she encouraged asylum seekers in general with this 
most moving anthem, climb every mountain, search high and low, follow every byway, every path you know, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow till you find your dream. they go crossing the border into Switzerland. That was the sort of conversation people were having about asylum-seeking refugee issues after World War II. I have another movie that I want to show you. This is a movie called Voyage of the Damned from 1976. It is after World War II, but it's talking about an event that happened in 1939, just as the war was, uh, was starting. In 1939, on June the 4th, a German passenger liner, the SS St. Louis, hovered close to the shores of Miami Beach with 907 Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany on board. And US Coast Guard cutters circled the boat. They didn't want to allow any of those refugees off onto US shore. They'd left Germany. They were bound for Havana, Cuba. But the Nazis had put pressure on the Cubans, and so the president of Cuba had rejected and reneged the offer of asylum, so they had come to Florida. And Roosevelt, who was president at the time, also ignored their request for asylum. They tried to do a last-minute deal with the Dominican Republic and eventually they had to return to Europe with these Jewish refugees. Now, the ship's captain was humane and principled and instead of going back to Germany, where the ship had left, he thought, well, I'll drop these guys off in Belgium, Holland and France about a month before the Nazis swept through those countries. Two-thirds of the 907 Jews aboard died in Nazi gas chambers. It's, a, it's quite a story and quite a movie. Both those stories are true. The Von Trapp family was a real family. You can Google them. That was a, this, this was a movie of true events. You can Google those. The way we talk about things matters and I want to suggest that the way that we talk about things has changed because half a century later and half a world away, an eerily similar drama to the ill-fated Voyage of the Damned played out. Only this time, instead of Jews, the refugees were Afghans. Instead of Nazis, it was the Taliban that they were fleeing. Instead of American politics, it was Australian politics that ruled the day. And like those aboard the Voyage of the Damned, a principled and humane ship's captain was these people's rescuer. On Sunday, August 26, 2001, the Norwegian captain of the Tampa responded from a distress call. There was an Indonesian ferry sinking with 440 asylum seekers on board. The captain and his crew rescued the ferry passengers and brought them on board their ship. And when they reached Australian waters, they were refused entry. And a week-long standoff between Norway, Australia and Indonesia followed. Now, today's Middle East 
might not be the equivalent of Nazi Germany. Half-rotted little boats in the Indian Ocean, maybe nothing compared to the grand St. Louis in the movie. But the story of the St. Louis makes me sit up and pay attention when people talk about turning back the boats or offshore processing. And so this morning I do want to dive in. I want to see how the Bible can instruct us on holding these conversations, which no doubt we are going to be having in the next three or four months. I want to see how the true humanity of Jesus leads us in considering these questions. So let's dive in. We're going to start in the Old Testament. And the famous, perhaps most famous passage that speaks into the issue of welcoming foreigners is Deuteronomy chapter 10. There are actually 21 references in Deuteronomy to the foreigner. It indicates, I think, the foreigner's importance to Israel. So here's Israel. They're on the border of the Promised Land. Deuteronomy is a pep talk that Moses is giving to Israel before they enter the land. They're refugees. They've been travelling, they've been seeking asylum and finally they've got their land. And Moses says to them, when we get into the land, God wants us to welcome the foreigner. In fact, Moses says, our calendar is going to be punctuated with a series of feasts and celebrations. And when we have these series of feasts and celebrations, the foreigners, the vulnerable, the poor, the widowed and distressed are going to eat with us. They're going to have a place in our households when we stop and celebrate at various times of the year. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 26. You and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord has given to you and to your households. I love that. It's a picture of a household that welcomes the foreigner. It's, a, it's, it's radically inclusive for these households to, to welcome the economically vulnerable. These are groups in Israel that probably wouldn't have owned land themselves. Radically inclusive. And I think these meals that punctuate Israel's calendar actually point us to the radical welcome of Jesus. People have said Jesus literally ate his way through the New Testament. And so he did. He ate with all the wrong people. People have said that Jesus actually died for who he ate with. He ate with outcasts. So you might call these meals meals of the kingdom. It's a radical welcome that shows us the shape of the kingdom of God. Celebration, relationship and radical welcome. So if the Israelite people were to to welcome people into their household like this, the obvious question is uh, where have they come from and why will there be so many? We get some hints in the Old Testament. The book of Ruth opens with Ruth having to find, uh, seek asylum in Moab because there was a famine in her country, um, Ruth chapter 1. Or displacement from war was another way that people were refugeed in ancient times. And so now we come to our key text. There it is on the screen. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them, quite practically, food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. God has a fierce loyalty to the foreigner. He's on the side of the poor and the oppressed. How does he love them? Well, he defends their cause. God says, when people will not defend your cause, I will defend your cause. And we know, we see that in the resurrection of Jesus. That secured a future, a human flourishing, as Mike has prayed, thriving for all. Second, he does it practically. He gives them food and clothing. It's a practical love. The third thing he does, which I find really interesting, he allows them to live 
wherever they like within Israel. Everyone and anyone is welcome to live in the land. This is Deuteronomy 23:15. If a slave has taken refuge among you, that is, the slave is a refugee, if a slave has taken refuge among you, don't hand them back to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like and in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. You are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. 400 years the Israelites were in Egypt. 400 years. And now God says, you are to show the same love to the foreigners among you as you would hope the Egyptians had shown you. Now we come to the New Testament. And as we come to the New Testament, it's crucial that we understand something about ourselves because we have to understand that we are a lot like Israel. That is, we share the experience of being a foreigner, just as Israel did. For most of us, it doesn't feel like that. Sky spoke about growing up in Manly and hoping she'd live out her days and, and be the old lady in the Manly Daily. For most of us, it doesn't feel like we've ever had to leave our place of origin and seek asylum anywhere. But Paul in Ephesians says this is true of us. We were foreigners. Look how he describes it in chapter 2, verse 12. This is the situation before. Paul says, Remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant to the promise without hope and without God in the world. Isn't that an amazing way to describe us? Amazing. No privileges, no identity, no future before the word of the gospel came to us. But that changed when these Ephesian Christians became Christians. They moved from being just individuals, lost, to being part of something bigger. Look at verse 13. They become the people of God. But now in Christ Jesus, everyone who is far away, and that's us, have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. But it's not the only distance that's been covered. The barrier, the division between people, between Jew and Gentile, has been broken down. Verse 14 of chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in the flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put an end to their hostility. That's the picture of the true human. That's what Jesus adds to this idea of being fearfully and wonderfully made because Jesus is bringing people who were separated by language, by culture, by tribe, by nation together in one new humanity. The image that Paul has in mind is the Jerusalem temple. There was a wall in the temple that separated the, the Gentiles from the Jews straight down the middle and uh, he calls it, in this passage, the dividing wall of hostility. I've got a picture here of a, um, 
an inscription that was found and this is how it reads. This is from the, uh, the second temple, Herod's temple. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and the enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will only have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Apparently that's what that says. That's some dividing wall of hostility. It separated unclean Gentiles from ritually clean Jews. The Jews were clean because they'd been circumcised. They'd kept the food laws. They'd kept the sacrificial laws. They'd they'd done the cleanliness laws, laws which included staying very separate from the unclean Gentiles. But when Christ spilled his blood, he satisfied the demands of the law. When Christ spilled his blood, he bore the curse of the law, of the lawbreakers as he hung on the cross. And when Christ spilled his blood, he tore the curtain in the temple in two, the curtain that divided God from man. And when that curtain tore in two, the wall was torn down that separated man from man, the dividing wall of hostility. One humanity, that's us, all reconciled to God, whatever our colour, whatever our background, whatever our education, whatever our marital status, whatever our class, whatever our language, whatever our accent, this is what Christ has done for us and this is who we now are. Verse 19, consequently, we are no longer foreigners. We are no longer aliens. We are fellow citizens. We're part of God's people. We're members of God's household. This is incredible. The Jewish households were to have a radical welcome. The foreigner was to feast with them. The foreigner was to be blessed by them. And God has welcomed us into his household. He eats with us. He fellowships with us. He reconciles himself with us. We are radically welcomed. We who were once far away, aliens, foreigners, strangers to God, have been welcomed to his household. Do you know when Jesus breaks into history with his kingdom, the sorts of people he gathers round him were the people that the Israelites thought were junk, were useless. The poor, women, children, people who are socially excluded, prostitutes, lepers, and eventually people like us. Dirty, Gentile, non-Jews. Jesus redefined the people of God. He said, many who were first will be last and the last will be first. And the next thing Jesus did was insist that the people who acknowledge him as Christ should care for the poor and the needy and the powerless. I don't know if you uh, have noticed, but as we've been studying through Luke's Gospel since February, this has been a theme. Back in February, we started the the, the story of Luke. We read Mary's song in chapter 1. It celebrates God's work on behalf of the hungry and the poor. In chapter 3, John the Baptist's preaching includes a warning to share with the poor. The story of Zacchaeus makes it known that anyone who knows Jesus will do justice and practice kindness. In fact, you might not have picked this up, but it's all through Luke. Luke himself conceives of Jesus as a stranger, dependent on the generosity of others. 
Do you know, we know the heart of the stranger because we were lost and estranged to God. And Jesus expects us as his followers to imitate his deep concern for those who are in trouble, whoever they may be. I don't know how you would expect people in Australia to welcome someone who's fled from a dictatorial violent regime, people who've seen loved ones murdered, people who've realised that their only hope is to leave home, to leave the place where all their hopes and dreams were centred on, to leave their friends, to leave their family, their community, all their earthly belongings, to leave all that behind and make a long and dangerous journey to a new country. And finally they arrive in a place like Australia, a land of freedom, a place where they can find rest, peace of mind, healing from their trauma. You'd think that we would do all that we can to make our country a place of healing. But the biggest objection to acting in love towards asylum seekers is the risk that it will open the floodgates, that they'll come in waves or that they'll somehow make us a soft touch and we'll be exploited. I think Jesus helps us answer that question best because he shows us that true faith and discipleship always involves taking risk. When Jesus reached out to a Samaritan woman, his disciples were scandalised. He had a lot to lose. This was in a shame culture where honour and status mattered. Jesus, what are you doing? His reputation was on the line. When he healed the blind and the lame, he risked being inundated with needy people. And he was. It didn't stop him. But among the risks is also possibility. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, it says, Many of you have welcomed strangers and in doing so have entertained angels. Isn't that an amazing verse, Hebrews 13, 2? Not terrorists. When you have shown hospitality, many of you have entertained angels, messengers from God. Possibility among the risks. We've learnt this morning that God welcomes foreigners to his household. We've learnt this morning that Israelites were to show kindness to the foreigner because they too had been foreigners. And we've learnt this morning that we were foreigners, strangers, aliens, far from God. And we've been brought near and we've got an invitation into God's household. It's a vision for a reconciled humanity. It's a starting place for our conversations Again, I I don't know the answer to policy questions but I think I do know the heart of the gospel. I think it's fairly clear what we are to do as Christian brothers and sisters, as believers in this Lord Jesus who calls us to one humanity because our great hope is to be there with Jesus, the barriers of tribe, nation, tongue, gone, surrounding, giving him praise and worship. But I can tell you a story of someone who's gone before us who's grasped this vision. His name is John Fry. He, uh, he's a retired member of Beecroft Anglican Church here in Sydney, St John's. John, um, a great Christian man, he actually ran a, a prison ministry called Kairos. He brought it to Australia. So he was a motivated um, Christian believer 
But when John heard something similar to Paul's teaching today, he was, he was hearing Peter in Acts kind of getting his head around the fact that Jews and Gentiles were brought together and, and uh, when Peter had a vision. John thought to himself, Do you know what? I've never ever met a Muslim. And more than that, I think I hate them in my heart. And so John took himself to Villawood Detention Centre to meet a Muslim. And now he runs a group called Neighbours and Friends. They're on the internet, you can get in touch. And they do sort of advocacy stuff and they visit Villawood regularly. And he, he says, uh, I now count some of these uh, asylum seekers in detention as some of my closest friends. I think it's a w- wonderful to see someone who's grasped a vision like that. One of the cool things about being in a large church like ours is we have um, existing programs for refugees that we can take advantage of. Anglicare has a, a group called the Migrant and Refugee Service and they do reading groups and they meet with men and women uh, just for friendship. They go into um, detention centres. They, they say, you have no idea what it means to show humanity, to show value to these people, just to pray with them and say hello. Maybe it's just, just that we say good day to a new Australian when we see them in our community. And they are in our community. Up at St Faith's Anglican Church, they're uh, looking after an Iranian man who was put in detention after becoming a Christian. He was an international student, fully paid for by his family back home and when he became a Christian they cut off the money, he got into visa trouble and had to go to detention. And he's being cared for by our brothers and sisters at Narrabeen Anglican. They are in our community. We can just say good day. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon there's an election coming. It's important how we think and how we speak. The sorts of conversations that we have as a community It can start in our car on the way home from church. It can start in our home. It can start in our family. Because how are we going to change the way that our society speaks? If if it's true that we've moved from making movies that, that expose our selfishness and our insularity to now acting it out in the tamper, if that's true, if our conversation has changed in the last 50 years, then we can change it, can't we? At least with our kids. At least in our church. At least in our families. Let me finish with an illustration that helps us see what's at stake when we don't think and we don't speak about the radical welcome of Jesus. You see, yes, offering a radical welcome to the foreigner is going to be risky. It is risky. There might be other foreigners who will come and take advantage of our generous welcome. But if we are too careful, lest some would take advantage of us, we expose ourselves to another risk with, I think, darker and worse consequences. This is Marcel Marceau. When Marcel Marceau died in 2007, I learnt about one of his movies called The Public Park. And he was a a mime, if you don't know him, a French mime with a white face. And in the public park, Marcel Marceau comes across a beautiful garden and he falls in love with the garden, the sights and the smells and the feel of the garden. And some children come along and play in the garden. They trample the flowers and muck things up as kids do. And so Marcel Marceau, who loves the garden, builds a wall 
around the garden, yet the children still come in. And so he builds the wall higher. And then the birds come and peck the flowers and mess up the garden and so he puts a roof on the wall. And finally he's he's happy because the garden is safe. But in the darkness of the box that he's made for himself, Marcel Marceau becomes lonely. He becomes desperate. The garden dies for lack of sunlight for lack of air, for lack of water. And eventually Marcel Marceau chips away a little hole in the wall and he peers outside. He chips away a little more and he can get an arm through the wall and the kids who are playing in the park grab his arm and with the kids' help they pull down the walls and they enjoy the garden together and they enjoy the garden more than ever before. Let me pray for us all. Father, we thank you for the blood of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness, for the reconciliation, for the invitation to be members of your household, to be part of your people. We thank you that we are no longer foreigners without identity, without future, without hope in the world, but we are loved by you. Father, may we love like this. Amen.